Welcome back to the Walk the Word podcast with me, Pastor James, coming out of Saar Fellowship in the Kingdom of Bahrain. We're working through Genesis one chapter a week, and today we get to Genesis chapter 14, where we see Abraham rescue Lot and this mysterious priest king, Melchizedek. As with every week, if you've not read Genesis 14, uh, do go ahead and press pause on this podcast, read Genesis 14, and we'll come back together as we seek to know and grow in God's word together. So Genesis 14 begins with this passage, verses 1 to 7, where we see that five kings are coming up against four kings. So there's going to be a battle. We read in verse 4, 12 years they had served Chedorlaomer, Loma, but in the 13th year they rebelled. And so I've read there are archaeological discoveries that have confirmed uh, these kind of rebellions and the ensuing battles. And uh, again, we've said this before, the Bible is not a history textbook, but it certainly has a place in secular history when at time and again and again and again, things like this, you know, all these being the, the kings of verses 1 and 2, all these joined forces in the Valley of Siddim, that is the Salt Sea, you know, they'd been serving this, 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 this king, they rebelled, they had a huge battle in these places. And when archaeology discovers this stuff, it's very, very, well, no, it's impossible. It's impossible to say, look, the Bible is just a bunch of made-up stories. It's, it's impossible when archaeology, people who are not there to prove the Bible, people who are just there to do their job, to, to, to discover what history looked like, when they find things that confirm biblical accounts, you know, it's impossible to say, look, these are just stories. Stories with a good moral meaning. You know, they're not. These, these, these are accounts of, of, of real events. And that's how we want to come to the Bible, knowing that it's real, don't we? And as we continue down into uh, to verse 8, we see then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Admar, the king of Zeboim, the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out and they joined battle in the valley of Siddim with the king of Elam the king of Goim, the king of Shinar, the king of Elisar, four kings against five. So we've got this, this battle, nine different kingdoms. It must have been a huge coming together of people. And uh, verse 10, now the valley of, of Sidim was full of bitumen pits. And that's pits full of, of black, sticky, tar-like stuff on the floor. And uh, so the battle, the battle's raging, and uh, we read in verse 12, well, no, verse 11, so the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions and went their way. And I read this week, uh, Charles Spurgeon said about Lot, remember Lot has come from Abram's family, he's seen Abram uh, become obedient to the call of God in his life, but he, he went and lived among the people of Sodom. And Charles Spurgeon said, those believers who conform to the world must expect to suffer for it. So here's Lot being taken away into captivity. And in verse 13, we read, then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew. And this is the first time he, the word Hebrew comes up in the Bible. And in the language that this was, was written in, the word Hebrew means he who has passed over. 
And it's more than likely that this refers to Abraham, Abram, uh, having come from the land on the other side of the Euphrates River. So is Abram the Hebrew? Is Abram he who has crossed over? And uh, in the Septuagint, the, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, uh, it's translated as passenger. Abram the passenger. But Abram the Hebrew means him who has passed over, and he's now involved in this. We read it, uh, he's living by the Oaks of Mamre, and uh, Abram's now involved, really because of a family honor. You know, this is what we read the particular, the son, the son of Abram's brother. Uh, it's his nephew, his nephew's in trouble, and um, Abram's now involved. Abram's now involved because his family is in trouble. And we read in verse 14, when Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. Now again, this adds to that idea that Abram was probably quite a wealthy guy at this point. He's got 318 people under his influence and his family, under his command. And I read that any man who can assemble 318 servants capable of fighting must have been very rich. And they, we read that they pursued, they went in pursuit of, of, of the people who'd captured Lot. They went in pursuit as far as Dan. So this Abram's army as such uh, pursued quite far to the north and uh, the city of Dan is not too far from what would be the northern border of Israel. And again, archaeology comes in here and I read that the gates of the city of Dan from Abram's time have been discovered by archaeologists. And now you can view them as the part of a, a national park in Israel. And again, just the, the archaeological truth to the Bible, the real world, secular truth. These things have been found. So it's impossible to say, look, these are just made up stories. These happened in real places with real people at a real point in time. So there's Abram is, is pursuing this, uh, this group of kingdoms who've captured Lot and all Lot's possessions. And we read in verse 15 that Abram is quite a clever guy militarily uh, he divided his forces against them by night and his servants and defeated them pursued them to hobar north of damascus then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman lot with his possessions and the women and the people so abram here then becomes a kinsman redeemer he becomes somebody in the likeness of lot who went and rescued lot from captivity and gave him back all that he had before. And if you think kinsman redeemer, you've maybe heard this term to describe Jesus taking on humanity so he can be our kinsman. He can redeem us from the life of sin, the life of shame, the life of trouble. And we think Abraham was courageous and brave and pursued the enemy, defeated the enemy and rescued Lot when he took back everything that the enemy had taken. And what a great picture this is of, of what Jesus does for us as our kinsman redeemer. Now, as we continue then, this passage is equally 
as interesting as it is confusing. Abraham and Melchizedek. This uh, is a kind of mysterious guy. We read about him in Hebrews. Uh, we read about him, or we read around him uh, in Psalm 110 as well. And uh, basically, we've got no idea who he is, where he came from, how he came to be here, but he is here. So we read in verse 17, after his return from the defeat of Cherdoloma and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheva, that is the king's valley, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. Salem uh, means righteousness, and it's the, where the, the name for Jerusalem, Jerusalem, comes from. And then Melchizedek blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. Or maybe your Bible says creator of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And here we see the kind of the dual role of a priest, those who stand before God and the people. We see that they bless the people on behalf of God, and that they also model the fact that we should be blessing God. Think about that wonderful worship song, 10,000 Reasons, and, and the psalm that it comes from. You think, you know, bless the Lord, O oh my soul. It is right to give, to give worship and to ascribe glory to God. So here's Melchizedek bringing out bread and wine, wonderful preview and, and a picture of, of communion and the, the, the body and the blood broken and shed for us. And as a result of this, Abraham gives him a tenth of everything. And that's a tenth of his assets, not a tenth of his monthly income. He gives a tenth of all he has to Melchizedek. And he also changes his vocabulary. Not a massively well-talked-about thing, but having listened to the priest and the king, this priest-king Melchizedek, having listened to him minister, Abraham then says, uh, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God Most High. It's not the main point of the passage, but we do see that Abraham changes his vocabulary and starts to use the words which Melchizedek uses to bless and to talk about God. And this uh, lifted my hand comes in the, the context of Abraham's made a vow that he's not going to take anything. Uh, the king of Sodom said to him, look, give me the, the persons, give me the people back, but you know, keep the rest of the stuff. And Abraham says, now I've lifted my hand. I made a vow to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I wouldn't take anything in case you can say I've made Abraham rich. And this is another great step on Abram's journey to becoming a man of faith and a man of obedience. We see that he's not willing to, to make anybody else glorified. He's only willing to give God the glory. And um, he's very principled about this, but he's not pushy with his principles. We see that um, in verse 24, I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Ana, Eshol, and Mamre take their share. So look, I'm very principled. I'm going to do what I know is right by God, what I have vowed and what I have said to God that I will do. But everybody else can make their own decision. So he's very, very principled in the face of a wonderful offer from the king of Sodom. But he's so principled 
and he's so principled, but he's not pushy with it. He leaves other people to make their own decision. And that's a great lesson for us. We can be principled. We can stick to what we've said to God. We can stick with what we know is right by God. But we don't need to force that on anybody else because it's that old maxim of a forced freedom is not a freedom. Like a forced love is not a love. So we can be principled, but we don't need to be pushy. So Abraham, Melchizedek, again, we don't know who Melchizedek, you know, there's lots of theories about it's a pre-incarnate Jesus. It's um, Hebrews talks about him. Hebrews 7.3 describes him as having uh, no father, no mother, no genealogy, no beginning of days, no end of life, but made like the son of God. Uh, some people have said it's Seth, Noah's son, or Job, or uh, an, an angel. But all these weird and wonderful suggestions have got no real biblical foundation. And uh, I read this week that the question cannot be said to be settled completely. So we just don't know for sure. Uh, otherwise, the identity of Melchizedek would have been agreed on by biblical scholars long ago. We can say with confidence that if Melchizedek was not an appearance of Jesus himself, at the very least, he is a remarkable type or picture or preview of Jesus. He comes to bless people. He comes to bless God. He comes to... He brings bread and wine. We said that's a wonderful preview, a shadow of of communion. And he was priest of God Most High, priest and king. And it's never a good idea when those two things are joined together. And we see later on in the New Testament that, that Jesus, in Hebrews, that Jesus is our high priest. He is he's king of kings, Lord of lords. And he's, a, he's our perfect high priest forever. So... I'm going to suggest that this is a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. But like we said, it can't be settled completely. Otherwise, it would have been done so. The Bible doesn't say so explicitly, but everything points towards this being a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. Next time then, we get into Genesis 15 and we see the, the covenant, the agreement that God makes with Abraham. But until then, God bless.